the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 9, let's talk about Oedipus. Last time, we looked at the last part of the story of the ruling family of Thebes that Sophocles gave us. Oedipus's daughter Antigone gives us a tragic tale and a debate about the nature of man-made law versus natural law, the nomos versus the physis, as the Greeks would have said. Antigone was written first, but now we step back in the story to the later plays. First up, we have Oedipus Tyrannos. The first play, in terms of the chronology of the story, has been known in translation as Oedipus Rex, Oedipus the King, or Oedipus Tyrannos. Now, none of them are wrong, but I've opted to stick with Oedipus Tyrannos because, I think, it's the most accurate when we understand the meaning of Tyrannos in the Greek sense. I've discussed the term and used it to describe the leaders of the city-states in previous episodes. The term's best used for leaders who came to power by force or by popular consent. Oedipus fits that mould of Tyrannos better than King or Rex, both of which have implications of hereditary right. The terms become linked with the word Tyrannos now, but to reiterate, in the Greek and later Roman sense, a Tyrannos was not seen as a bad thing. The Tyrannos could be a very useful position in a time of crisis where one man was given power to make decisions quickly and with authority. The Athenians partly sacrificed their vaunted democracy to characters like Pisistratus and Pericles because they got things done, particularly in times of conflict. Of course, there was factionalism and political manoeuvring that enabled those who wanted power to get it, and I doubt any of these strong leaders were completely altruistic, but by and large, they did adhere to the concept of democracy as the ultimate goal. What was most feared about the Tyrannos was the idea that they would outstay their period of office, and we see this particularly later in the culture of the Roman Republic, where there's a great fear of the autocratic ruler, a king, taking control. And that wasn't an unfounded fear. Julius Caesar did become tyrant or dictator for life, a king in all but name. And although his successor Octavian maintained the illusion of merely being first among equals as Emperor Augustus, it was in fact the end of the Republic and the beginning of empire. An unanswered question of history is what would have happened if Pericles had not died in the besieged, disease-ridden city? The course of the Peloponnesian War was changed by his successors, first with some success but ultimately their tactics failed and Athens was left to rule by Sparta and oligarchy. So, it's not really possible to speculate with any certainty. Had he won the war for Athens, would he have retired gracefully and allowed Athens to fully return to democracy? It's tempting to think not, given the centuries of evidence showing that power is rarely given up freely, but there is at least the argument that he was at heart a democrat who believed that the real strength of Athens came from the populace, so maybe a peaceful and effective transfer of power could have been achieved when the time came. We'll never know one way or the other. But, I digress, back to our Tyrannos of the moment, Oedipus. There's a lot of backstory to this play. The Oedipus myth is a very well-known story, both then and now. Parts of it feature in the Iliad and the Odyssey. There is archaeological evidence to show that the tale was well known by 1500 BCE. Gold seals unearthed in central Greece and dated to about that time show Oedipus and the Sphinx. In ancient literature, there are references to three lost poems that relate part of the Theban cycle, which are thought to have been authored in about the 700s BCE. It's a story present in many folk traditions in the Mediterranean, the Balkans and even as far as Finland. 
Aeschylus wrote a trilogy on the subject, which is now sadly lost. What an interesting exercise that would have been to directly compare the treatment of the tale between these two great poets. But we assume that version was known to Sophocles, and Euripides also wrote a version. References suggest many other poets also took up the subject, but again, these are lost to us. So, although the contemporary audience undoubtedly knew the plot, it's interesting that Sophocles put a lot of emphasis on showing the effect that the ever-increasing revelations have on Oedipus and Jocasta. He attempts, and many have argued he absolutely succeeds, to treat this like a new story that nobody has heard before. For those who don't know the story, it would have been good to have jumped straight into the play as it opens, but that would involve a lot of stopping and starting during the narrative to fill in the backstory. So here's what you need to know or be reminded of. The beginning of the story goes back to Laius, king of Thebes, who was warned by an oracle that he would be killed by his son. When his wife Jocasta gives birth to a son, she has the infant exposed on the hillside. Shocking, yes, but not uncommon in Greek society. Newborns with deformities and quite possibly just unwanted babies would be exposed in this way and left to die. Jocasta's baby was secured to the hillside with his feet pinned together, but a shepherd came across the child and takes pity on it. The child becomes adopted by the childless king Polybus of Corinth. Although the etymology is uncertain, the name Oedipus is thought to mean swollen foot, and this deformity is referred to in the text, so it's tempting to think of the actor playing the lead limping their way with feeling through the performance, much like a Richard III portrayed as bent double with backache. Time passes, and as a young man, Oedipus travels to Delphi, where the oracle reveals that he is destined to kill his father and marry his mother. And really, life would have been so much easier in ancient Greece if people only stopped consulting these oracles. Hoping to avoid such a fate, Oedipus decides not to return to Corinth or to see his parents ever again. He travels towards Thebes. At a crossroads, he encounters a man in a chariot with attendants blocking his way. Showing his hot temper, he confronts the man and kills him while the attendants run off. When he arrives in Thebes, he learns that the city has a problem. A sphinx has taken up residence at the city gates and is posing riddles to passers-by and killing any who can't solve the riddles correctly. Oedipus, the bold hothead, decides he can take on the sphinx and confronts it. The sphinx poses the now famous riddle. Which creature has one voice and yet becomes four-footed and two-footed and three-footed? Oedipus solves the riddle by answering, Man, who crawls on all fours as a baby, then walks on two feet as an adult, and then uses a walking stick in old age. Some accounts of the encounter with the Sphinx have a second riddle, which goes, There are two sisters. One gives birth to the other, and she, in turn, gives birth to the first. Who are the two sisters? Have a think on that one. I'll let you know at the end of the episode. So, Oedipus survives, the Sphinx is destroyed, and the city returns to normality. In gratitude, the city elects Oedipus ruler and he marries Jocasta, the widow of the former king, who has vanished while travelling abroad. For a new ruler to marry into a surviving family was not unusual. It added legitimacy to the new ruler and helped smooth the transition of power. There are many examples of this through the Roman and Byzantine eras, right through to the European ruling families of the Middle Ages. So, on the face of it, nothing too odd there. Oedipus and Jocasta have four children. Ectocles, Polynices, Antigone and Ismene, and live happily ever after. Oh, okay, no fooling you there. Let's rephrase that. 
for the moment, they live happily ever after. Right, that's the backstory done. The play opens. And it opens with Thebes in trouble again. The city has been visited by the plague, and a crowd of very old and very young citizens, played by the chorus, have gathered at the palace gates. Oedipus enters to see what their heartfelt prayer is about. He is reminded of the suffering of the people as crops fail and women and animals become sterile. He is also reminded that he is the leader of Thebes because he saved the city by solving the riddle of the Sphinx, as they look to him for leadership again. From the start, Oedipus seems quite arrogant, and although he says he has sympathy with the plight of the people, it's not convincing. He refers to himself as, I, Oedipus, your world-renowned king. And only shortly after expressing his own bafflement at the cause of the suffering, he adds that he's not unaware of that suffering of the people, and has already sent his brother-in-law Creon to the oracle at Delphi for advice. He expects Creon's return any moment, but he also sends for the blind seer Tiresias. Seems like he had such faith in these oracles that he needed a kind of backup oracle, just in case. Creon enters and brings the good tidings, as he puts it, that the oracle has revealed the cause of the plague. It has been visited on the city because the death of King Laius has never been avenged. Once it is, the plague will leave. Oedipus immediately vows to find the perpetrator and exact revenge, promising to blind the culprit. He is determined to take this on, because Laius died childless, so has no one to take on the task, and, if the same fate were to befall him, he would want someone to take revenge for his own death. As Oedipus waits for Tiresias with growing impatience, it's established that only one witness to the killing of Laius survives, and Oedipus sends for him so that he can be questioned closely. When Tiresias does arrive, led by a boy, he's reluctant from the start. His opening lines are, Alas, alas, what misery to be wise when wisdom profits nothing. This old law I had forgotten, else I would not be here. This reluctance is driven by fear of the king's hot temper, which is coming more and more to the fore. In his anger, Oedipus declares that Tiresias himself must have committed the crime, so the old man pointedly counters with, You are the man, you the accused polluter of this land. And then, even more explicitly, I say you are the murderer of the man whose murderer you pursue. So, Sophocles is not trying to hide anything here. Only some 300 lines or so into the play, and we have the problem laid out for all to see. Except Oedipus doesn't get it, and he's enraged. He accuses Tiresias of being in league with Creon in an attempt to overthrow him. The old man departs in fear, but not before delivering one more resounding prophecy. I go. But first I tell you why I came. I don't fear your frown, for you cannot harm me. Here then. The man who you sought to arrest with threats and warrants this long while, the wretch who murdered Laius, the man is here. He passes for an alien in this land, but soon will prove a native-born Theban, and yet his fortune will bring him little joy. Creon returns and defends himself against the accusation of treason. Through the exchange with Tiresias and now with Creon, the pitch of the arguments has risen steadily, the exchanged lines becoming shorter and quicker. Oedipus is both arrogant and petty, while leaping to aggressive accusations as his ire rises and rises. Creon holds his own, but we have to note that this is the same tactic he uses later when faced with Antigone's disobedience in Sophocles' earlier play. It seems that in Sophocles' view he has learnt nothing, or perhaps become equally as blinded by power as his brother-in-law is now. Here is just one part of the exchange. Oedipus. 
I would not have you banished, no, but dead, that man may mark the wages that envy reaps. Creon. I see, you will not yield, nor credit me. Oedipus. None but a fool would credit such as you. Creon. You art not wise. Oedipus. Wise for myself, at least. Creon. Why not for me too? Oedipus. Why, for such a knave? Creon. Because you lack sense. Oedipus. Yet kings must rule. Creon. Not if they rule ill. Oedipus. Oh, my Thebans, hear him. Creon. Your Thebans? Am I not a Theban too? Jocasta enters and tries to calm the argument. She sees that the prophecies have started to unnerve Oedipus, so she tries to reassure him by relating her own experience with the oracle, which she believes proves that the oracle can be wrong. The prophecy that Laius would be killed by his own son obviously did not happen as he died abroad, attacked by robbers. Oedipus is initially reassured, but on hearing of the manner of Laius's death, he suddenly becomes even more concerned. He gets Jocasta to describe her former husband and what she knew of the circumstances of his death. As they await the summoned witness, Oedipus reveals to Jocasta that he's concerned because he killed a man in circumstances that fit her description closely. As the awful truth begins to dawn on them both, Oedipus clings to the hope that the witness will repeat the story Jocasta remembered from the time, that her husband was set on by a gang of robbers and not a single assailant. Jocasta leaves to pray at the shrine of Apollo, and a messenger enters with the news that King Polybus of Corinth is dead and the citizens wish Oedipus to succeed him. Oedipus is relieved to hear his father died of natural causes and he was in no way responsible, but is still concerned at the idea that he could return to Corinth and live with his mother. What might that lead to? The return Jocasta is reassuring. Why should a mortal man be afraid, with no assured foreknowledge of the sport of chance? Better to live careless life from hand to mouth. Do not fear this wedlock with your mother. How often does it chance that a man dreams that he has wed his mother? He who least regards such brain-sick fantasies lives most at ease. No surprise then that Sigmund Freud found this story and this play such an interesting case study and named a complex after it. But, strictly speaking, the play does not have a Freudian aspect. Oedipus does not wish to supersede his father in his mother's affections, as he never knew his father except at the moment of death. He's not jealous of his father as required by the Freudian complex. Equally, the idea of a sexual relationship with his mother is abhorrent to him, and his relations with Jocasta are in some sense forgivable, as neither knows their true relationship. However, there is a Freudian reading if we accept that Oedipus's arguments are all about projecting his subconscious guilt onto others, Tiresias and Creon in particular. Oedipus is still haunted by the prophecy and, eager to reassure him and no doubt curry favour with his soon-to-be king, the messenger tells him of how he knows Oedipus by his foot deformity and that it was he, a former shepherd, who handed the foundling to the royal couple in Corinth. This is the moment of recognition for Oedipus and Jocasta, and some commentators regard it as one of the greatest ever written. In that moment, hope turns to despair, the ultimate moment of catharsis. For Aristotle, it was the perfect example of how a moment of recognition leads to enlightenment, closely followed by a reversal of fortune and decline into tragedy. Oedipus is determined to divine the absolute truth and will not be deterred, despite Jocasta's best efforts. His nature will not allow for half measures. She exits, despondent. Oh woe, you poor wretch. With that last word I leave you henceforward silent evermore. 
Still partly blind to the truth, he assumes she is concerned that his birth is in fact lowly and not royal. The aged shepherd arrives. Under threats from Oedipus and in a careful-what-you-wish-for moment, the story of the found child is fully revealed and Oedipus has no possibility of doubt about the terrible truth. He did indeed kill his father and sleep with his mother. His children are also his siblings. He rushes off in mental anguish. The chorus chants sadly of the heavy hand of fate in the lives of men until a messenger enters to proclaim that Jocasta has hung herself and that on finding her body, Oedipus had cut it down, torn a brooch from her clothes and blinded himself with the pin. Of course, we don't see the act, but the blind Oedipus staggers back onto the stage. Presumably, this was affected with a change of mask. The images used in the play previously collide. The once ankle-pinned Oedipus has now put pins in his own eyes. He relies on a stick to tap his way around, becoming the last age of man from the Sphinx's riddle. His own hot-headed and cruel treatment of others is thrown back at him as Creon takes control and deliberates over his fate. They agree on exile for Oedipus and a decent burial for Jocasta. His only request is to see his daughters once more and, as he embraces them, he bemoans their difficult futures, referring to them as sisters rather than daughters. The curse he hands down to the generations is the curse of incest. Appropriately, the chorus ends the play on a sombre note. Look all, countrymen and Thebans, this is Oedipus the Great, he who knew the Sphinx's riddle and was the mightiest in our state. Who of all our townsmen gazed not on his fame with envious eyes? Now in what a sea of troubles sunk and overwhelmed he lies. Therefore, wait and see life's ending before you count one mortal blessed. Wait until free from pain and sorrow he has gained his final rest. During my research on this play, I've seen it much praised in parts, but also much criticised, often over exactly the same parts. The recorded plays started with Aristotle, who saw it as the best example of playwriting, the original well-made play, and believed it should be studied and emulated by all poets. Some see the plotting as the strong point, where no element can be removed or changed without the effect of the whole suffering. The plot is relentless and filled with inevitability that emphasises the tragedy, and that tragedy is not just for Oedipus alone, but extends to Jocasta and the next generation of his family. It also has strength as a detective story, in the same way as Shakespeare's Hamlet is. Who has committed the crime, and who is morally responsible for it? Is the plague a metaphor for the moral state of the ruling family? The imagery of the diseased city must have been very striking to the contemporary audience. If we have the timing of the production right, it happened soon after the city had been subjected to the fever that killed a huge section of the city population, including the leader Pericles. Presenting that to an audience who were possibly still traumatised by that event was a bold move, to say the least. Oedipus is also a very introspective character. He's constantly asking, who am I? Again, this plays into the idea that he has some subconscious awareness of his history. Sophocles manages to probe into his inner world and thoughts in what can be seen as a very modern way. The play is also packed with the tragic irony that Greek audiences love to see. At every turn, Oedipus unwittingly makes decisions that drive him to his own destruction. And if there's an overall message, 
it's that it's not always necessary to possess all of the knowledge. It's a point Tiresias makes explicitly as Oedipus forces information out of him. But for all the praise and for all the strengths of the play, there's one big central problem. The plot may be logical in its individual steps, but it's quite unbelievable. We're expected to accept that Oedipus and Jocasta have never discussed the circumstances of her widowhood before, or that as part of his arrival at Thebes and attempt to gain legitimacy, Oedipus would not have ordered the searching out of the killer of Laius himself. And now, years later, there are a couple of witnesses that are easily found, and the truth quite easily found out. And are we really to believe all these fantastical coincidences that propel the plot? When you start looking at it in detail, it soon loses credibility. One can't help wondering why, for example, the citizens did not get the all-seeing Tiresias to answer the riddles set by the Sphinx and change the course of the town's history, even before other fantastical coincidences take place. The defence to this is that for the contemporary audience and for many in centuries since, the concept of fate playing a significant role in your good or bad fortunes in life was probably very much more real than it is for us today. Oedipus and Jocasta suffer the worst possible turns of fate in a very heightened and exaggerated way, but the chorus then comment on how all men are affected by the same hand of fate, and the Athenians are probably nodding along with him, particularly those who have just suffered some particular bad luck. And if we criticise Sophocles too much, then we also have to bring in Shakespeare, Marlowe, Tolstoy, Dickens, Hardy, and many other greats of literature into the same group. Oedipus Tyrannos only came second in the year that it was in competition at the Dionysia. Given the strength of the play, we have to assume it was paired with tragedies of much less impact. Well, that or a bit of jury nobbling by the other competitors. Sophocles was beaten by Philocles, who some say is the nephew of Aeschylus and author of over a hundred plays in his own right, all of which are now lost, so we'll never know for sure but it does qualify for his greatest play for the vast majority of commentators and serves as the model of his total dramatic achievement. Within the play and executed with extraordinary feeling for the dramatic moment are all the basic questions of tragedy, which are presented in such a way as to define the form itself. It sets the norm for tragedy in a way that possibly cannot be claimed for any other surviving work. The ancient story has intense dramatic appeal. Through Seneca, the theme was transmitted to a long succession of playwrights, including Cornell, Dryden and Voltaire. In the post-Freudian world, it's had special resonance, providing inspiration for a Stravinsky oratorio, André Gide's play and Jean Cocteau's novel, The Infernal Machine. And it endures, I think, because we see Oedipus as a flawed hero, and one who falls from great height to the deepest depths, But yet we can still have sympathy with him as a man because he was always trying to do the right thing, but with one exception. It is his hot-headed nature that lets him down and the resulting killing of Laius that seals his fate. And then he administers his own punishment and, in that suffering, a suffering that will continue in the exile he requests, knowing that death is not punishment enough, he finds a semblance of dignity and, in the very last moments, one might even say, integrity. Next time, we continue with Oedipus and look at the sequel to Oedipus Tyrannos that Sophocles wrote 50 years later, Oedipus at Colonus.
Colonus was Sophocles' hometown, and this play seems to have particular significance, coming from an old but still well-respected poet. We meet an older, calmer and wiser Oedipus. He is a very different sort of hero in this very different play. And remember the second riddle that some accounts of the myth include? The one that goes, There are two sisters. One gives birth to the other, and she, in turn, gives birth to the first. Who are the two sisters? The answer is night and day. Both words are feminine in ancient Greek. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp@gmail.com at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. 